Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In this week's episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast, I speak with Dr. Graham Brownlow of Queen's University, Belfast in Northern Ireland. We talk about rent-seeking, geometrics, and the DeLorean. Graham also explains what analytic narrative is. You can check out all the show notes at economicrockstar.com forward slash Graham Brownlow, where you will find links and resources mentioned by Graham in this episode. Never miss an episode of the Economic Rockstar podcast. Visit economicrockstar.com, submit your name and email, and you will get each episode straight to your inbox. Because of civil unrest, the, the Northern Irish economy's institutions were transformed and became far more interventionist. And that DeLorean was just one of many, but he was far and away the most famous entrepreneur who was able to leverage off that generosity. And if you want to think about in terms of rent-seeking, going back to that, making connections, he was able to try and use the rules of the game to his own advantage and actually, I think, try to alter the rules of the game at some point. Hi, Frank Comer here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar Podcast. I am so honoured to have Dr. Graham Brownlow join me today. Hi, Graham. Welcome to the show. Hello. Well, thank you for having me on. It's a great pleasure and privilege. Dr. Graham Brownlow is a lecturer in economics at Queen's University, Belfast, Northern Ireland. Dr. Brownlow's research focuses primarily on economic history and institutions, evolutionary economics, Irish economic and business performance, and violence. He also has an interest in methodology in economic and business history. Graham edits the journal Irish Economic and Social History. And a lot of your research, Graham, and what really stood out to me when I was looking at some of your work, and it's a question I tend to ask some of my guests, and I'm going to ask you later on, but you, you talked about the DeLorean in a few mm-hmm. of your papers. It's a fantastic mm-hmm. read. And it's all of it is the background or the build up to it is on rent seeking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I suppose for those people who are unsure of what rent seeking is, if we might go down the theoretical aspect of it first, if you don't mind, what is rent seeking? Okay, okay. The briefest way to understand rent seeking, I think, is to understand that you can create profits through selling a better mousetrap. Uh, or alternatively, you can secure profits through lobbying that your type of mousetrap is the only mousetrap that can be used. Um, there's no guarantee that the second route leads to the best mousetrap, but it might lead to you getting profits. Um, and the technical definition of rent-seeking is the resources you're willing to allocate to securing your monopoly position. That's that's the way I would perhaps define it. Other people might define it a different way, but I think that's the um, neatest, least geometrical <laughs> way to define rent-seeking. That, 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 that would be my starting point. Other people, again, may define it differently. And it's not a great uh, term, I don't, I don't think, because when we talk about rent-seeking, we think about the rental of properties and so mm-hmm. so on. And I, I think yeah. that's an issue that students of economics might find somewhat confusing. But rent-seeking is the additional profits that you might be able to obtain on a product that you sell or service by looking at the privileges that you get from political interference or lobbying, as you said, or not as you said, but uh, based on the regulations that are built around it and creating that monopoly yeah. for you. Yes. And is this something that we see more in democratic societies now or would have been something that is or has been in the more in the past based on an emerging economy? Just say, for example, your work on Northern Ireland. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the 
I suppose that the division that's created between North and South and Northern Ireland was with the British Isles, yes. or part of Britain. But the troubles, etc. I don't know whether the rent seeking actually filters in through that type of perspective on the economy there. Okay, so I think I'll, I'll move from the general observation about rent seeking through history, uh, and then talk maybe specifically about Ireland North and South. I think probably Perfect. that's the best way to to do it. Um, in terms of my view about rent seeking through history. Um, I think we have to be honest and say still, I would say we're quite unclear for the simple reason that uh, rent-seeking is quite difficult to measure. I mean, there are all sorts of empirical studies of rent-seeking, but often I think often these empirical studies miss important aspects, um, which is one of the reasons why I use so much historical archival evidence in my work, because there's just a limit to what statistical quantitative techniques can sometimes do, and I think rent-seeking is one of these topics. Um, that'd be the first observation. It's just—it's a difficult concept to measure. So, in other words, we're talking about through history. I can't turn around and say it accounts for 30% of today's national income, whereas the 18th century accounted for only 10%. I can't do that with any um, degree of confidence, because I, I, do, I just don't see uh, a reliable set of data tools. Uh, but that somebody else might, might discover those. So just theoretically, intuitively, I do think that as we've moved to a larger share over the 20th century of the public sector in economies of developed economies, um, that that has created more opportunities for lobbying. Um, and so uh, you could argue on that basis that probably is more rent-seeking now than it was previously. But on the other hand, uh, this is where it links into the specific work. Um, what clear, what's clear to me from my own research is it's the specific institutional structures that you've got that will determine, in my view, whether you do or don't end up with rent-seeking. Um, so obviously my paper covered 1945-72, um, and it was very specific institutional situation in, in that period of Northern Ireland. Um, uh, that I think was crucial in explaining that degree of rent-seeking. Uh, and I think in that paper, towards the end of that paper, Northern Ireland moves away from as much rent-seeking. And yes, you said about the troubles, and I think what we see with DeLorean is sort of uh, a reignition of, of that process, but that was a very different mechanism. That was because of the kind of distortions that I think violence brings into an economy. So I think that's probably... Um, I hope that answers your question in both the specific and general. I don't know if that's yeah. Uh, when when you mentioned there that there's more rent seeking today due to the lobbying, I raised my eyebrows because I would have thought that rent seeking would have been higher or would have contributed a lot more to say the the GDP back then as opposed to now in most of the developed economies. But mm. there is a lot of lobbying going on. Maybe it's due to globalization. Maybe people are, maybe that's why we have Brexit, perhaps. Yeah, no. I mean, there are a lot of corporate, I mean, in the topic of Brexit, there are an awful lot of corporate interests. Um, I, my reticence about the degree of rent-seeking is simply because the, the lack of, I think, uh, reliable empirical indicators on rent-seeking is very difficult to measure. I just intuitively think that um, rent-seeking tends to grow with large public sectors because there, there's a bigger pie to, to get a slice of, and so that gives you an incentive to lobby. A lot of these very poor countries 
you know that exist today uh there's not so much uh, of these rents to get but i might be entirely wrong i mean i, I haven't done any detailed study on some of these say african region countries but if i look at the if i look at british economic history it's difficult to see um through the 19th century as nearly as much evidence of rent seeking as uh, in the 20th century and if i look at northern ireland um i i, I suspect that what happens after 1945 is because the growth of government after 1945 um as much as anything i mean the point was that between 1920 and 45 uh northern ireland's public sector was a lot smaller um and there weren't subsidies to give out um you know the point is an awful lot of very poor countries just don't have subsidies they might have monopoly rights which is uh, which might be an issue but um i i think it's hard to say that there's a uh, i think it's very difficult to give any kind of general um general conclusion in my view i think it's all very specific and requires i'm afraid um detailed historical analysis um, um i'm far more comfortable doing that than just saying oh uh, it grew from 10% or 20% to 30% or 40% i i i'm uncomfortable with those studies because again i think if you look closely at some of the methodologies they 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 look a little bit suspect in my view and that's true i i'm sure that's exactly true because from a historical perspective it's very difficult first to get the data and how we associate or mm-hmm. put that data to it. for example i could be wrong here but i recently came across an article where a taxi license in new york city had peaked at 1 million dollars a couple of years ago oh wow <laughs> and with the arrival of the likes of uber and say the sharing economy mm-hmm. i don't know whether that's a causal effect but since then or maybe it's because it was there was a market and it, was, it had peaked and a lot of people got priced out of it and hence the demand wasn't there compared to the supply but prices have come down 25 to 30% since then and the taxi drivers are now lobbying the the city um to try and retain their market share on pickups and mm. now the government are interfering or intervening in order to uh, penalize uber drivers on illegal pickups and i suppose that's at the rent seeking behavior i'm sure where a market is yeah. regulated and becomes highly inefficient because mm-hmm. of this regulation yeah so um like do we have we wouldn't relate rent seeking because when we were talking there a few minutes ago I a thought came into my mind about corruption but it's nothing to do with corruption when you were talking about african economies or uh, the irish economy up in north and uh, perhaps there is corruption because you might have lobbyists who would pay the brown envelope or backhanders uh-huh. to politicians uh-huh. and so on um is there evidence of corruption in rent seeking Oh uh, yeah there is a, a literature in, in the development field um some african uh, nation uh, or uh, economists have have looked at underdeveloped countries and do talk about the blurring of the lines between uh, rent seeking and uh, corruption uh, i mean if you think of it as a patron client relationship okay so if you think of um that the, the, there's maybe a politician uh, with vested uh, interests, and you could think of construction. Let's think about let's think of the the Irish context, north and south. 
You know, um, we talk about politicians with constru- construction planning uh, type interests. Well, I think in the one hand, yes, there's, there's both evidence of large lobbying uh, in both sides of the border historically. But there also is some evidence, of course, of that slipping into that that slipping into um, uh, the phenomena of what the Indians would call fast money. You know, when the Indians talked about all the restrictions in their economy, um, which uh, they said that the corruption actually was there to speed up the economic process. So it, it can one thing can slip into the other. Um, uh, again, it's a, it's a matter of degree, and it also is a matter of legislation, of course. I mean. Uh, there's a cultural aspect, I think, to corruption and um, uh, and rent seeking. I mean, um, I, I noticed that some American airports, you know, you can uh, get your bag checked in outside the main terminal, um, and uh, you know, uh, people have drive up, and often there'd be members of staff there, and they would tip them, and the, the bags would get it checked in quicker. Now, if the same phenomena occurred in parts of Africa. I think we might be quick to call that corruption of some degree. Uh, but in the context of the United States, it's just described as, as, as tipping. Um, so I, I, you wonder, I wonder at what points um, our definitions sometimes depend on the context. And so we might turn around and say, oh, rent-seeking and corruption are actually very different phenomena. Um, but actually, they, they might be blurring of lines. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking off the top of my head here because it's not something that I've really worked on, but... Uh, we know what has gone on with, say, the car emissions controversy mm-hmm. across Europe mm-hmm. um, with the Volkswagen and so on. Yeah. Would would that be an element of rent-seeking behaviour or part of it? Because they are one of the largest lobbyists. And when it comes to the reduction of car emissions, these companies uh, come together, create a lobby group and in Brussels, they, they lobby government and politicians, and then they get an extension on the emission reductions. And then it's forcing these car companies to effectively be corrupt mm. and mislead the public. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think I think there's a, I mean, I'm not a game theorist, but I think there's a, a very nice sort of game theoretic bargaining story that I'm sure somebody's done. Um, whereby what I think has happened in the Volkswagen case is they've called the bluff of the governments, thinking that if they were ever called out um, over these emissions, that they're just too big and a, a too big a player to be um, picked upon uh, too heavily. And I think they've probably miscalculated in that regard. Um, and I, I think well, BP did something similar about um, problems the, 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 with their health and safety as well. So I think there are there is a tendency for some corporate interests to uh, believe that they um, can get away with things if they're too big a player in the economy. I mean, I mean, in the, in the Northern Irish case, it's very clear, although I haven't written a, a formal paper about Harnham Wolf, but it's very clear that Harnham Wolf was such a big, significant player in the Northern Irish economy um, that, that even when they weren't performing particularly well, the unionist government was loath to do very much that was radical to get them to perform better. Um, and so I think if you're a big player in an economy, a big corporation, you may take you may take for granted that, that eventually you're going to be answerable to somebody. Um, and that might be yeah a link between politics, democratic politics, and um, 
and rent-seeking slash corruption. I think that's probably the mechanism. It's, it's a bargaining story. I actually have Harlan and Wolf down on my notes here. I meant to, I intend to ask you about that company. Uh, as we know, they're the shipbuilders up in Belfast who had built the Titanic. Yeah, yeah. And the, the industry collapsed, was it in the, would it have been the 1980s? Yeah, I mean, but Harlan and Wolf, I mean, post-war was in trouble much earlier. I mean, Harlan and Wolf was in trouble from the 1960s. Um, indeed, the Treasury, uh, I mean, from the files I've seen, Harden Wolf was losing a million pound. That's in the 1960s prices, a lot more today. They were losing a million pound uh, with every contract they were winning. Um, and obviously the Treasury were saying, well, you know, it pays you boys and girls not to actually win contracts. And that's oh, a stupid state of affairs. So the Treasury in the mid-60s were very keen to close the doors of Harden and Wolf. And it's just largely it's political intervention um, and political symbolism that keeps Harn and Wolf going. Um, I mean, I think Harn and Wolf before, I mean, I, I haven't written a detailed business history of, of Harn and Wolf, uh, and indeed nobody has. It's quite, it's quite an interesting uh, aspect of um, the literature and Irish economic history that we've so little business history, but that's something else we can come back to. But I mean, the, po- the point is that um, Harn and Wolf, I think pre-45, were actually a pretty well-run business from what I can say. Um, they survived the Great Depression on like Workman Clark. Uh, but I think uh, post-45, uh, things go wrong for them, um, and they don't adjust and adapt. And the, the government is involved, the first unionist government and the British government. Um, and then back in period of direct rule, uh, it's back to the British government's responsibility. And I don't think they really ever recover. Uh, and they make a lot of strategic errors along the way, I think. Um, so that would be my... I mean, I haven't done a detailed study of Harnwolf, but it's it's just the impression I get upon uh, material I've I've worked on, and certainly in the case of DeLorean, um, the shadow of of the cranes at Del- uh, of of uh, Harnwolf um, loom large in some of the some of the discussions. You know, it would be a fantastic case study or even a paper to read about Harn yeah. and the Wolf. And regarding DeLorean, you've had a you have a couple of papers there. Yes, yeah, two uh, two, two journal articles, and uh, yeah. Very uh, clever titles as well. Oh, back, back, to the, back to the failure. An analytic narrative of the DeLorean debacle and soft budget constraints and regional industrial policy reinterpreting the rise and fall of DeLorean. Yes. And it's a, it's a, one of those industries or a car that's symbolic of an era in the 1980s and of a startup of, of a, um, DeLorean is, is it John mm-hmm. DeLorean? Yes. Uh, his attempt on taking on the car manufacturers almost reminiscent of what a Tesla are doing at the moment. Yes, yes. A lot of people have, uh, a lot of people reading the papers have made the parallels. Um, I probably should, probably like Harn and Wolf, it's probably another topic that I should, I should write about there. So, so many papers to write in so little time, I'm afraid. But, um, That's but it, I, I think, I think, uh, I think that, yeah, I think a lot of people who've read the papers have, have made the links and, and whatnot, yeah. And I, I mean, I think there are big issues to write about DeLorean before DeLorean, um, as it were. I, I, I think that, um, yeah, there's a lot of issues about General Motors and and the extent to which DeLorean was actually not a rebel and actually was just trying to ape what they were doing at General Motors. But, but that's just an observation. Yeah. And I, I know they're actually, um, there's, they have a new plant now in Texas, I think it is, 
and they're making the DeLorean car a modern version, obviously, of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure if it's a separate company who's decided it's, it's to boss. It's a separate boss. company. It's a separate, okay. yeah, it's a separate company. There's a whole, I mean, I'll, I have to be careful what I say because there's a lot of litigious people involved. Um, but they're 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 a separate company. Um, but there's an awful lot of issues about the the rights to the the name and and things like that, uh, which is emblematic of the failure of the the sort of the British government and the civil servants to to make sure in all the contracts that they didn't secure all the rights and intellectual properties. Um, uh, you know, to 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 the the car because you know it's it's still a huge uh, huge money earner today. But even T-shirt sales and and whatnot. Um, it's, it's it's quite interesting. Uh, it's, it just... Even the name itself would have if they could if they could have or the family protected a name whether they did it or not. I don't know anything about it, mm. but they, it could have mm. been a, a huge money generating cash cow, I suppose. Oh yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, it's it's absolutely. a brand, especially with the Back to the Future uh, franchise. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I mean to John DeLorean, um, there's a letter John DeLorean writes to. I think it's Bob Zemeckis, the director, uh, maybe even the producer, Spielberg, um, where he basically thanks them for um, reigniting interest in, in, in the DeLorean car. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, there's no doubt. It's, it's quite interesting, you know, I'm an economist rather than a sociologist, but if, if, if I was a sociologist, I'd be quite interested in the uh, sociology of the DeLorean um, uh, car uh, car fans because, you know, I get a bit of flack from some of these people um, because I, I've dared to, to dare to point out the problems in the business model, um, and uh, there's a lot of former employees of DeLorean who have written various books which, which purport to tell the quote-unquote truth about what went on. And a lot of these books, I think, are very self-serving and ignore the actual economics of the business. So I keep trying to point out that I'm not interested in the technical issues of the car because i think that's not the place you look to understand the business i'm just interested in it as a business model rather than the design of the car which an awful lot of people get overexcited about and uh, when you go onto facebook and there's a there's loads and loads and loads of um facebook pages about delorean and car car owners and there's lots of very protective little um groups of car owners and people who are official historians of various groups who get very agitated about what I've written, but uh, I, I, it's a uh, it's it's a it's a it's a revelation in the dark recesses of the internet. These things. But, and do you want to reignite that uh, agitation um, here and for people, and maybe go into your perspective oh, yeah. on the yeah. economic background to the failure of the DeLorean, or is it be, would it would it have been would it have been better for DeLorean to have been located in another country other than the north because. <laughs> It would. It, I don't think it would have been down to that really at all, would it? Um, I don't. Be, oh, yeah. Oh no, it's certainly not the security situation. It's not the issue. I mean, security situation actually explains why it locates in Northern Ireland. Uh, actually, reality-wise, that the um, the only three offers to locate the firm at the end of the day were uh, Puerto Rico, the Republic of Ireland, and Northern Ireland. Um, and Northern Ireland's package is much more generous than either Puerto Rico or the Republic of Ireland. Also, the oversight that the IDA, the Irish uh, Development Agency, the, um, the, in, in the Republic of Ireland, was much more detailed and thorough than the Northern Ireland um, IDB. Um, consequently, uh, DeLorean had very good reasons. A, got more cash, and B, got less oversight to locate 
in Northern Ireland than any of the other locations. So, um, I mean, what the story about DeLorean is, is where he is, pl- I, I, many of your listeners might have heard of Moretti's recent book, The New Geography of Jobs. Um, and uh, Moretti in that book makes a passing reference to uh, entrepreneurs um, playing off different governments against each other to locate inward investment. And I think there's an element of DeLorean as a cautionary tale in that regard. Um, you know, because the, the private sector was not interested in, in, in funding the business. Um, it, was the, it was the public sector that came in, um, in the case of Northern Ireland, that funded it. And my contribution is in both papers, they, they take different perspectives because um, that's why they're different papers. And again, that's linked in with sort of my myth- methodological views come back to later on. What both papers share is the fact that uh, because of civil unrest, the, the Northern Irish economy's institutions were transformed and became far more interventionist. And that DeLorean was just one of many, but he was far and away the most famous entrepreneur who was able to leverage off that generosity. And if you want to think about in terms of rent seeking, going back to that, making connections, he was able to try and use the rules of the game to his own advantage and actually, I think, try to alter the rules of the game at some point. So I think, I think that's, I think that's uh, probably the best way to summarise it. Does that make and, sense? Yeah, and that, that paper, Back to the Failure, an analytic narrative of the DeLorean tobacco, when you were saying an analytic narrative, would this be based on actual data or based on your own analysis given the the, the history and the the works that have been written, as you mentioned, are about the contract study and the contractual agreements and so on. Okay, well, sort of the analytic narrative, um, I think you recently talked to Pete Betke. Yes. And Pete Betke uh, would be, I mean, he's actually, I, I actually refer to Pete Betke's uh, work in, in that paper um, because he has a very nice summary of an analytic narrative. Um, okay, so what an analytic narrative is essentially is... Uh, the easiest way to understand it is is you're looking for detail, okay? So you're looking to balance the detail of of actual fact, <laughs> okay? So you want to know, you want to have fact, um, and at the same time, you want to keep the rigor of an economic model. I mean, there's nothing more beautiful than working through the economic model and the causal links. So what you do is it's, you identify your puzzle or problem, okay, as your first step, and then you immerse yourself in sort of the the resources and and the topic, and then what you want to do is then move towards a more formal, uh, sort of more formal aspects. So what it results in is that you don't start with your model and say. I've got this beautiful model here. What can what can I use to, this model to explain? Which sort of you know, say classically, say the Gary Becker or Freakonomics type approach. You start with your model and say, now what this what can I use this model to explain? What you do is you look first uh, to your uh, historical issue at, 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 under investigation. And then you think, well, what are the main issues that arise at a historical topic? And then you think, well, what type of model will explain it? So when I when I when you come to look at DeLorean, you, I think you're looking at issues about institutions, rent seeking, entrepreneurship, 
different forms of entrepreneurship, uh, the links between uh, entrepreneurs and uh, running from institutions to inst- entrepreneurs, like Beaumont type argument, or a more recent type argument um, that links in again with somebody else that you've had in your show, like uh, Peter Leeson, uh, um, uh, where you, you look at how the entrepreneurs actually shape the institutions themselves. Um, so I think that that's the way I would summarize analytic narratives. I think it's really it's moving in the reverse direction that people often do. Um, Pete Betke, again, has written a, a very nice um, paper sort of classifying analytic narratives, and I think a, a review of, of books about analytic narratives. So that, that's, that's the way I would summarize. I hope that makes sense to the listeners. Yeah, my hand is falling off me here writing all the notes, but I got them down, and what I'll do is I'll put them on the show notes page uh, in case anyone is doing the same and they're listening, you can just go back to economicrockstar.com forward slash Graham Brownlow and you'll find the notes and so on and whatever other uh, resources and links to the books that you mentioned on that website as well. Um, yeah, so you, you mentioned a couple of books already and some economists, but I'd like to ask you, what influencers do you have in terms of economics based on where you got to today in terms of your research or even something that you're branching out to know if okay. you're moving away from some of your work? Okay. Uh, I mean, how I got to where I got, um, well, probably more by accident and design. Like, um, well, I did an undergrad degree at the University of York in economics and economic history. And then I worked um, in the real world in Whitehall as an economist, and uh, I worked in fund management, and it, it wasn't interesting to me very much, so I, I came back to academic economics, but I decided to come back to economic history, um, which which I've always found as my first love. And as I've gone along, teaching in various places around the world, um, I've been inter- it, it's opened up my interests in te- of based on teaching. And intellectually, I've, I've been quite eclectic. That my, my PhD was about Douglas North and the implications of his ideas for reinterpreting Irish history. Uh, but I have a lot of influences from public choice, Coase, the Austrians. Um, yeah, I'd, be, I'd be very eclectic and pragmatic. I wouldn't, I wouldn't place myself in any easily identifiable school, although I have a lot of sympathies with new institutionalism. Um, but uh, so that's that's where I'm coming from. Um, in terms of where I'm going, working on currently, uh, because of my teaching, um, I, I've been involved in teaching a number of things. One of them is a module on the politics and economics of devolution, which I teach the economics bit of it. So basically, that's a, a case where, um, as we see with Brexit, that actually practice is run ahead of theory. And so what I've discovered in writing and teaching about the economics of evolution, um, I've, I've written some work recently that's coming out on fiscal decentralisation and ours altering taxes within countries, um, and that that interests me. Um, I think there's an issue about devolution in the sense that I think devolution involves having to take parts of public finance, economics, public choice. Uh, it, it requires you to take parts of regional economics and take, requires you to take parts of of economic history in order to make sense of the uh, financial settlement in the United Kingdom um, and how devolution has made that more complicated. And so in other words, to understand something like the Barnett formula, you have to understand it was designed 
as a stopgap for a system of devolution that never actually arrived. Um, and, you know, the UK retains it to the present day. So that's one of the areas I'm working on. I'm also working on um, uh, material I haven't developed very much on the economics of uh, the original UVF. I want to go back to it because the original UVF uh, kept accounts. And I think it's an interesting case study because in contrast to the the Republicans, there was a very strong link on the loyalist unionist side between the business community and paramilitarism at the start of the 20th century. Um, and I think if we're going to understand um, a lot of the the links between politics and economics in both Ireland's, you know, both both Ireland's, then I think we should try and understand the linkages between uh, business, commerce, and 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 uh, politics. So that that be two papers on two areas I'm working on. I also want to work through another uh, Delorean paper, but far more based upon thinking about entrepreneurship um, and, and, and strategic management, those sorts of issues. So, so it's, again, it's a question of finding time rather than no lack of ideas. And, uh, just talking in this podcast already, I mean, uh, uh, Harlem Wolf uh, strikes as another future project, but uh, that, that's sometime in the future. I would I'd like to get back to that and, and go back to look at linen and things. So I think there's no shortage of topics because, as I said earlier on, Business history in Ireland is very underdeveloped. Um, there just isn't a tradition of business history. Um, uh, and uh, there's an awful lot of interesting firms in Ireland and interesting topics in, in, in Ireland um, to look at. And there's a lot of interesting economic history as well. You know, a lot of economic history, we've only scratched the surface. We've, we've looked an awful lot at the, tw- the 19th century. Um, and I've, I've written a bit on 20th century economic history of both North and South. Um, so I think, you know, I've written a few times on T.K. Whitaker. Um, and um, I think there's fascinating stuff on pre-19th century Irish economic history that nobody's really written about, about reinterpreting the penal laws um, and the extent to which they were actually about rent-seeking and uh, even earlier about the plantation itself. So I think that, I mean, there's no shortage of projects I'm, I'm, I'm working on where I'm thinking about the links between institutions, entrepreneurship, I mean, um, and economic history. Um, I'd, 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 I'd love to be able to give you a neat... Um, yeah. The, the Even the history of a, a country, mm-hmm. um, we tend to look at it from a complete package as, a, say, a student yeah. or someone who is likes a general reading of history. But if you narrow it down to... I suppose a microscopic perspective, like mm-hmm. you mentioned there, the plantations. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. so much economics in yeah. that, yeah. in terms of land ownership or uh-huh. you uh-huh. know the how the, the relationship between the the landlord and the peasants and yeah. the farmers and you know mm-hmm. the, the interaction there. It's almost economics mm-hmm. at its rawest. Yeah, uh, and yeah, there's um. You you were talking to you actually mentioned the UVF for those who don't know is the Ulster Volunteer Force. Yeah. Um. But also you mentioned linen, something yeah. that you I think you might have written a paper. Yeah, my first, my very my yeah my very first paper with Frank Geary is on uh, linen. It's in the uh, Cambridge Journal of Economics back in two thousand and five, I think. Yeah, two thousand and five. My yeah. my own family uh, father set up a, a linen business. Oh right. Um. So in the south here in uh-huh. the Republic. Uh huh. And. You know, it's 
probably one of the only or very few, I think it's the only linen uh, business actually in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's something that uh, I, I'm going to take a read of that paper actually and just mm-hmm. see the, the transition historical yeah. perspective and mm-hmm. the economics of it. Yeah. It'll be very interesting there. It's yeah. a, I suppose some people see it as a dying industry, but mm-hmm. we're always going to need plot mm. you know mm. whether it's going to be from another country or yeah. this one but yeah um you, you also mentioned douglas north yeah 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 his research is based on a methodology called cleometrics yes yes and this is yeah. something that you would be using yourself rather than uh, you, you alluded to it earlier on yeah i think do you do you want to briefly explain what cleometrics is or do you want to go down that avenue just Oh all, yeah. Or, okay. Yeah. Yes. Oh yeah. I mean. Uh, okay. So I mean. Uh, I mean, my, uh, what Cleo metrics is? Uh, Cleo is the muse of history. Metrics is uh, obviously comes from econometrics. So Cleo metrics was the uh, development from the Purdue seminars in um, the 1960s and building on Conrad and Meyer's papers on slavery in the 1950s. Um, it was the idea that. Uh, traditional economic history in both Britain and the United States was very narrative, very descriptive, and was very had had for a lot of reasons had developed very separately from economics. Um, so in in the UK, for instance, and and, and in the case of Queen's Belfast, this was true that there were separate uh, departments of economic and social history in UK universities. In most of them, there are exceptions. Uh, for instance, York, where I studied, or Warwick, the economic uh, social history department was within the economics department. But most, it was a separate department. Um, and this led to uh, the economic historians being very separate in Britain from uh, both mainstream historians and, uh, on, the other, on the other hand, economists. Um, and there was some case in the United States of that as well. But what happens in the 50s, 60s is Doug North and a, a lot of other pioneers um, go back to arguments of earlier writers like Hamilton and Heckscher. And what they try and do is turn economic history into a branch of applied economics. So they go to the new uh, economic computing power and enables them to do a lot of uh, econometrics. And they go back um, to... Uh, Topics in applied price theory, and they can write on things like slavery, the railways, etc., etc., etc. And so that's the origin of cleometrics. Um, I think Doug North's interesting because, of course, Doug North is often discussed as an economic historian by some people, and he's off, often discussed by as an institutional economist by other people. And my my paper on Doug North is actually to understand Doug North. You have to understand that he's actually both. And what actually happens over his career is he has three phases in his career where he starts out as a very straight cleometrician with really no interest in institutions. Um, and, you know, he's very much a, a hardline neoclassical price theorist uh, at the start of his career. But that he transforms over his career, um, becomes more and more interested in uh, institutions, uh, and he comes more and more uh, convinced that there are limitations to mainstream uh, price theory. And so I, I discuss Doug Norris' ideas in these three phases. And then, um, I mean, I, th- I think that there's a lot of good stuff, obviously, within all three phases of Doug Norris' career. Um, but, 
you know, he's he's a very rich writer, so it's very easy to, to identify points at which he contradicts himself because he wrote for so long. I mean, he, his early papers were in the 1950s, and he's writing it right up to uh, at a very high level. The what, Violence of Social Orders came out, what, 2010, 2011, something like that. So, I mean, when you have a career that long, and you're trying to balance economics with history, uh, which is a very difficult task. Um, you're going to change your mind over your career, which is what Doug North did. Um, so, I, I mean, I tend to stress the, the the change as well as the continuity within Doug North's work. So I think that's probably my um, assessment of Doug North. I don't know if that makes any sense either. It does, yeah, it's great. Fantastic. Can I ask you a couple of questions then? Sure. And it's one that I had said to you at the beginning and we had a discussion with the DeLorean. Mm-hmm. But if you could step into the DeLorean mm-hmm. and time travel, oh yeah, yep. what era would you go back to and who would you like to meet and give advice to and what would that advice be? Ooh. Be they a politician, economist, a family member, I don't know. Whoever, you, I don't want to influence your, your own thinking. Ooh. Do I have to give the advice? Oh, I'd, I'd be much happier to go back in time and take advice. Or even uh, take advice. Yeah, yeah. No, I I think, um, and it's just one point in time, just the one point in time. If you want uh, to go and, yeah, if you yeah, want to go I, and travel. I think I'd be quite, obviously, I think for any economist, with the, if you're offered the prospect of time-traveling DeLorean, I think it's got it's got to be, I think a two stop journey. I'll be greedy, um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the first stop has to be Adam Smith, and you just you just gotta sit at his knee and and listen, um, and and I think I think that would be my first stop, uh, and I think my second stop would be probably to go to um, probably something like the Mont Pelerin Society, uh, meet early meetings. Um, because pretty much everybody's there he'd want to hear from and uh just to be a fly on the wall again to listen i i i think i think going i'm not sure that it's, i wouldn't want to i've watched enough doctor who to know that you don't want to mess the space-time continuum so i, I, I don't want to i don't want to go back in time and give joe menner kins any advice about micro foundations or joseph schumpeter advice about general equilibrium or something um because we all might regret it <laughs> if I gave such advice. Um, so I'll, 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 I'll stick within the laws of science fiction and 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 and, uh, and take advice from these people and listen at their feet rather than try and give advice. I think that's probably the most ethical um, course of action. And what was the second one you said? The Montpellier Society. Mon- the Montpellier Society. You know the society like Hayek, Friedman, um, Mises, all the guys who set up the sort of free markets. Uh, okay. Uh, back. I mean, I just think the early meetings are very fascinating because, I mean, historians of economic thought are still writing about that, those meetings, and and, all, and um, of course George Duncan as well. I believe was at the first meeting as well. Uh, the Irish, um, the Ar- the tr- professor of economics at Trinity, um, and I believe George O'Brien was invited but didn't attend. Um, I, again, some of these some of these early Irish economists are actually quite fascinating. Um, but uh, I'm digressing, so I think oh. I, I think I'm, I'm being greedy. So go back and listen and learn from Adam Smith, and go back and listen from Hayek and Friedman, all those boys. And uh, I don't think you'd go far wrong. If there's a recommended book for undergrad students or for anyone who is new to economics, what would that book be? I think Tim Harford's books, "The Logic of Life" and "The Undercover Economist." 
um, and actually Undercover Economist Strikes Back. I think Tim Harford's uh, books, I think, are the, uh, are the, the best and they're easy to get hold of in terms of uh, just introduction to economics. Um, and I think, I'm not sure if it's still in print, but Steve Landsberg's Armchair Economist is also very good. Um, I think that's probably the best road into economics, uh, I think. I, I, I don't think there's any text that I would start a person off with. Um, yeah, I agree with you there regarding text. It can be very heavy, yeah. weighty, technical, and it's always good to have a fantastic writer like Tim Harford yeah. be able to discuss economics, yeah. but more in a something that you would be more in tune with. Yeah. Absolutely, and 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 he, he's a great writer in in the sense that he really, uh, I mean, he's he you can see his journalistic skills and his communication skills are are second to none, um, and he really does. Uh, I mean, I can't remember if it's Logical Life or Undercover Economist where he discusses asymmetric information, and uh, I think it's one of the best summaries, far better than any introductory textbook discussion of the topic. Um, Actually, it reminds me for my my teaching. I need to 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 integrate that more into my teaching. Um, uh, so I, I think that would be my those are probably my starting point. I mean, uh, there are other books, of course, you can recommend to people who are further along in their economic study. But I think it's not a bad starting point to to start with those Tim Harford books. Um, um, I think we're very lucky in this generation of economics that we have writers that quality. I mean. I have I, I read uh, reread Shackles Economics for Pleasure recently for something I was working on for teaching and uh, for me it was okay to wade through but there was no way you you could ever assign such a book to an introductory student whereas Tim Harford's work um, and uh, Steve Landsberg's Armchair Economist um, you certainly can with with pleasure. Yeah. Great. Great. Thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining me in Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you. Share with our listeners where they could find you. Uh, I'm I'm just at uh, my, I guess you just Google Graham Brownlow, you'll come to my uh, page at Queen's and uh, there's various working papers on the Queen's website. And uh, yeah, uh, you can always email me. And uh, and uh, yeah, I've no, I've no uh, website of my own. And there's a research, there's also a research gate page again if you go into the research gate page and just go into graham brown at queen's belfast you'll, you'll see me there um i don't think there's any other i as i said i don't have like a big whole single dancing web page but uh, yeah well you have a link now on my website okay. economicrockstar.com forward slash graham brownlow and what i'll do is i'll put all the links and resources that you mentioned on this and all the contact details your email if you want to as yep. well as your um your yep. your link to queen's yeah and so you can find all the links on economicrockstar.com forward slash graham brownlow graham thank you so much for being so generous with your time you are an economic rockstar Thank you very much. That's very kind, and uh, I hope it wasn't too painful. <laughs> oh, no, it was very interesting. That flew by, that 50 minutes flew by. It really interesting. I would have okay. loved to be able to talk to you more. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not leave some feedback or comments on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com? where you can also sign up and be a member of the Economic Rockstar community. 
If you're listening to this episode on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, I would love to have some feedback and for you to leave an honest rating and review, as this will help with the rankings of the show so that more people can find it. If you're listening on the website economicrockstar.com, make sure you check out the back catalogue of all previous episodes and interviews with some amazing professors and authors at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I really appreciate your loyal support. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now.